Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm uh, not Adam Pierno. I'm Farah Bostic. <laughs> You're not owning your generation X. I'm not. I, you know what was funny? I was about to say, I'm also Adam Pierno. I don't know. Like, for some reason, I was going to say the same. I'm just going to repeat you. I, my brain completely went into, I'm actually red right now. That's <laughs> like um, no. the Brian Regan joke of telling the cabbie when they say, have a good trip. You say, you too. Yeah. In case you ever go somewhere. I am so guilty of that. I'm constantly you tooing people who are like, have a nice meal. I do too. I am. I uh, frequently just like, how do I end this exchange? Like, I think I just said, <laughs> I can clone my way out of here. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we're, so you are not going to be Generation X today, regardless. I'm, just, I'm not feeling Generationy. Okay, all right. Hey, we can transcend. This is just one label the man tries to put on us. It's true. I have a whole hot take about how I think generations are over, but I'm still working on it. So that's all. As you we learned, right as we learned from Kim Parker. We're not doing that anymore. That's right. So, I, that's what I'm I am. I'm Generation Kim Parker. Yeah. Hashtag Kim Parker. I'm with Kim. <laughs> well, today we're going to continue where we started with uh, Cindy Gallup. And the narrative gap that we found while we were doing the research uh, into the overall narrative into, I guess, intimacy is, and, and connection and you know that important step that we took as Generation X from passing notes and obscure mixtapes and weird notes in your locker. I don't know if any of that shit still exists. Um, so what's been replaced? On. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, Cindy introduced us to, in her conversation, to intimacy, but also she introduced the idea of technology. So we were very lucky to have met Dr. Katie Caduto, who is a PhD at and a, an assistant professor at Boston University, who has been studying and publishing on online dating. And we got to talk to her about uh, her insights into the way these apps, these tools, these platforms affect people's mindset towards relationships overall. It's just an amazing conversation. Yeah, it was because I think a lot, you know, where we had found the gap of they're not talking a lot about relationships, intimacy, sexuality. They are talking about you know, gender identity, they're talking about sexual orientation, they're talking about bad romantic habits of, I guess, bad romantic habits, you know, maybe it's not, but like sexting, ghosting, swiping, as opposed to, you know, get, you know, the gamification of dating, like all of yes. those things have created their own little kind of hand wringy things. I still firmly have a belief and I brought it up in, in the conversation last time with with Cindy, that a lot of these thought pieces are like, youngish reporter for the post or the times or whatever has a bad online dating experience and decides to write a thousand words about it. <laughs> um, or their friend has some, you know, gets ghosted. And so they write a piece about it. And like, how do I make this a bigger deal <laughs> than it actually is becomes the project? Yeah. How do I turn it a into a words. cultural statement? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or either that or an editor, you know, who's a boomer or Gen Xer and maybe married is like, hey, who's a who's a youthful person that can explain this in, in 650 words in the, on the blog? Like, yes. Oh, come on. Yes. I think there's also like these shifts that happen just inside of a single person where it's like, I was cool with it for a while, but God, now I'm really, I mean, it's a drag. Like I'm really tired of it. And so maybe I'll write something and complaining about how I've changed my mind. Like I actually think that thing that before I was fine with, I really find annoying. And I wish I would like it to invite more columnists and reporters to just sort of go, sometimes you get bored of things and that's not newsworthy. <laughs> it's like yeah it's like a, a thousand word think piece on like i'm done with quinoa <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> a 
We just gave it three <laughs> was months. Was I wrong no, no about quinoa? <laughs> like, yeah. Literally, oh, yeah, was that's I wrong about like, kale? Why, what the world got wrong about quinoa? It's like, no, no, you just had it seven days in a row. Now you want something else. It's okay. It's all right. Exactly. Just have some regular exactly. rice. And you can yeah. come back to this powerful green. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many grains. You don't have to break up with quinoa. You can just sort of see other grains. It'll be fine. You can have an open relationship with your grains. Now I'm wondering if quinoa is a grain. Yeah, shoot. We're gonna look we're gonna look pretty stupid when big quinoa comes to smack us down. <laughs> to tell us it's actually like a seed or a I hope that there is a I hope that there is a cartel that um that comes to correct us. <laughs> you don't want to get canceled in the quinoa, big big quinoa. You definitely do not. But so, I, you know, so because there's that kind of the inevitable piece about the kids are ghosting, the kids are sexting, the kids are using uh, emojis, the kids are swiping, the kids aren't meeting in person anymore. They're just engaged in totally so attenuated, so digitized of a relationship that is not even a relationship. It's more like a parasocial relationship as opposed to an actual relationship. I mean, there's all of those kinds of think pieces that have been out there. And it felt like, I don't know, somebody's got to know what's really going on there. And it turns out there is somebody who knows what's really she, going on. Out she there knows quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, her research and her uh, input on the topic are really compelling. So enjoy this conversation that uh, you and I both had with Dr. Katie Caduto. We have a guest today. We're joined by assistant professor at Boston University, digital media researcher and author, Katie Caduto. Katie, how are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Katie, the timing of this conversation is absolutely perfect. Your book is uh, just out, Technology, Privacy and Sexting, Mediated Sex. It's perfect timing for the work that uh, Farah and I have doing. But first, a very important question for you. Which generation are you? <laughs> I am a millennial through and through. <laughs> perfect. Now, do you remember the Cozy Coop? I do. I absolutely do. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh, I... <laughs> Did you know it by name or by description? Description. Description. But I was like, this sounds familiar. My... Uh, my, one of my grandmas had one and it was like the thing for all the cousins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You would fight over who gets to ride. Yeah, it. exactly. Right. Like see how many of us we could fit in it at a time. So maybe not so cozy. <laughs> yeah. Or it's extra cozy. Yeah. Extra cozy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My my mother tells me a story about one day I was driving around in my cozy coop and I got out and I had this old wallet of hers that she no longer used. And I get the wallet out of the little whatever trunk in the back, open it up, and I like rest my elbows on top of the the uh, the roof of the car, and I say, "God damn it, I forgot my checkbook," because my dad <laughs> was always saying, "God damn it, I forgot my checkbook." I love it. I love it. <laughs> so yes, fond I, memories. My kids, I remember having fake things that they used as cell phones, but it would just be like something like this, mm -hmm. and they would just. Because that's what they saw us doing with our cell phone. I don't know if that's great education. <laughs> it's something. <laughs> Katie, something so sure. we, we wanted to, obviously, your, uh, the title of your book is a good precursor to what we're going to talk about. But before we talk about millennials specifically, I wanted to give you a chance if you could talk about the research you do overall so the audience uh, yeah. understands what you've been working on for the past few years and have your uh, PhD in. Yeah, absolutely. So I have my PhD very broadly in communication and technology, and my specialty areas are online dating and sexting. So yeah, I'm never bored. <laughs> um, and so I have been really interested in online dating pretty much since I started my PhD in 2016. Uh, so I've been in this space for a while now trying to understand a lot of different facets of it. So not just kind of, you know, like the profile creation or how you decide to match with someone, but the whole process of figuring out, you know, do I download an app? If I'm downloading an app, what's it doing for me? Who am I connecting with? Right. What do I put in a profile? What do I look for in a profile? So that whole process of understanding, you know, searching, matching, meeting is really what I've been interested in. And then my more recent work has grown from that where I've been trying to understand sexting and that came up in part because so many people that I interviewed about online dating were like, well, I keep getting these like unsolicited, unsolicited messages, right? Like these unsolicited dick pics, and it's really uncomfortable. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, area to really dig into. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, it's kind of a fun 
area of research, I'm sure you hear a lot of jokes in your social circle about, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, let <laughs> me tell I have an anecdote for you that you can add to your book. But there's real questions. And as I read more and more of what you write, and uh, I had a chance to talk to you previously, just hearing about how the psychology elements of mm-hmm. it and the behavioral elements feed into how we use online dating and how we use sexting now, which I don't think we covered in depth when I last talked to you, as Fair and I have been continuing to figure out the threads of the millennial narrative. We were like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is also part of the story. Yeah, absolutely it is. So as you're in your research, how much of it have you been able to parse by generation and how, how important of a role does that play? I had a chance to read some of your, some of the book. And notice that you were able to make some delineations by specifically you were focused on millennials and Gen Z in the in the uh, bits that I read so far. Yeah, I think especially when you're thinking about any communication technology, but especially in this context, the generation that someone is in really does play a big role in the thought process for what they're using, how they even use it. One of the things I talk about in my classes, so I teach uh, social media communication research methods, all those good things. And one of the things we talk about is how even, you know, the way you text your parents, their word choices or their use of punctuation might be really different from how you as a millennial or Gen Z, right? Any of us use those things. And so then when you put it into dating, seeking relationships, seeking sexual connection, generation plays a huge role. And so like in online dating, for instance, millennials are particularly interesting to me because millennials were the ones who were really becoming adults when things like Tinder and Grindr started to take off. Mm-hmm. And so you have that interesting mix of being, you know, what people call like digital natives where they adopted, they, we, right? <laughs> they adopted technology as they were kind of getting into college. And so it was very, you know, supposed to be this natural adaption or adoption. But then with online dating, it, you know, it also carried a stigma. And so I think for millennials, perhaps more than a lot of other generations, there's a really interesting tension between well, I have this technology and I can utilize it for all my needs, but it also doesn't feel great or it's not what my you know parents did. And so I, that's been one of the most interesting things for me. And some of my most recent research, which is under review <laughs> right now, it showed that millennials were among the most kind of disillusioned with dating apps. Like they have them and they're using them, but they're like, I don't really know that they're doing what I want them to or getting what I want out of them. So interesting. You raised an interesting point about digital natives, and and that's something we've talked about. And in the first book that we've read together, uh, Farah and I are reading a bibliography for some of our upcoming work. And in the first book, The Selfie Vote, they talk about digital natives, and they talk about Uber as the example, which is a fantastic example, because it really was paradigm shifting, you know, once you have that experience. It also, Uber also opened the door for a lot of people to join mobile, you know, mm-hmm. the mobile lifestyle and say like, oh, that's really useful. I get it now. Yep. As you looked at adoption of Tinder, Grinder, and all the, you know, Bumble that follows, how much of it is mobile adoption versus, you know, in general, those tools just becoming really practical versus wider acceptance of, oh, mobile and social media is, a, is an okay, reasonable way to date versus that stigma that existed when I did online dating in the year 2001? That's a great <laughs> question. And I think there's a little bit of both of those at play. Um, you know, I think some of it is just our phones are always on us, right? And especially when smartphones came in, it was just so easy to have everything right there. And so one of the things I think plays into this is the sense of, you know, kind of constant accessibility. So if you're trying to date someone, it's great, you know, maybe for you to just be able to be like, I can message them anytime or they're, you know, it's so easy to potentially get a hold of them or to have a match come up right away. So I think that's absolutely part of it. And then I do think there's something too, to the kind of changing stigma of online dating, because you're right, like, most millennials would never think about like joining eHarmony.com and having to sit on a desktop, right, to find someone. It's It feels like it's not for me. It's not <laughs> modern, trendy, right? But it's, it was interesting. So in my earliest research on this, I was interviewing primarily millennials. And there was definitely that initial spillover where it was like, well, it's still online dating. You know, just because it's mobile and maybe a different kind of technology, sort of, still online dating. And for a lot of people, they were like, you know, is Tinder different from like, okay, Cupid, 
Right. Not really, <laughs> you know, but what's been interesting is to see the shift. So from 2016, 17, when I was first doing interviews to now, the stigma, I don't want to say it's totally gone, but it's really, really reduced because it's just become much more integrated, much more natural. So I think initially the stigma was a huge kind of barrier to not necessarily using dating apps, but admitting that you were using them (laughs) versus now it's like, yeah, this is just kind of a thing that we all do. So I think a lot of people think the dating app scene is, is kind of funny, but I think it makes sense that so many of us rely on it to find romantic or sexual partners. Part of it is just, you know, we grew up with technology to a degree. It wasn't as central in our childhood as it is for the children and young people today. We grew up with such knowledge of it that it was so easy to take on these new dating services as they came out. I think another part of it is kind of exhaustion. So I don't know, especially if you don't live in a big city, there's not a lot of these meetups anyway there's not like a lot of speed dating events anymore and I think people find those kind of awkward and cringy anyway but I think it's we're all working so much at least as an American I I feel very tired (laughs) I think we all kind of do I think we're all exhausted from work and the pressures of you know feeling like oh it's time to start a family it's time time to buy a house and we're living through all these crazy world events Um, (laughs) I think we come home from work and we're tired and it's way easier to just cut out the BS and to put exactly what you want on these apps. It's funny. It sounds like the stigma for generation one online dating didn't go away. It just got displaced to like, there was a stigma around it because it was like using the personal ads in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's a stigma. It's like, it's just not cool because it's not, as cool as what's on a mobile device as an app. So it skipped, you know, that whole generation. Yeah, Yeah, it really did. (laughs) Yeah. It was never cool, I guess. Never got its moment. Give it time. Give it time. The thing I was thinking about over the weekend while I was reading through some of the stuff about privacy and how people are parsing that, it made me think for some reason about sort of tropes from kind of movies in like the 80s. Like you have Crossing Delancey, which is this like, she has failed at love because this toxic guy that she has a crush on won't love her back. And now her grandmother or whatever has hooked her up with a Yenta. And so having to use a Yenta is just like, you know, hang my head in shame kind of thing. Too embarrassing to admit. There are scenes in, I can't remember which one, but a, a Woody Allen movie where you've got his sister has is divorced and has started um, dating, but she's doing like she's like using some kind of service to connect her with men and it's like phone based and there's phone sex happening and then weird first dates and it's completely you know scaring her and also wigging out her brother who's played by Woody Allen and but part of the story is like you're supposed to meet somebody some other way you're not like it shouldn't be arranged in any particular with any particular technology. And so there's something in here that's like the technology changes over time and how quickly it moves or how easy it is to use might change over time. But part of the, like, I don't want to admit that I'm using these apps is like, it suggests somehow that I'm failing at some basic mechanism of socializing because I'm not finding people just like out in these streets. That was especially early on, one of the biggest findings was like, well, there must be, I don't want to say something wrong with me, but a lot of people were like, it does feel like a failure to have to result to my phone or, you know, to your point, even before the mobile to result to or turn to online dating on a desktop. And I think that's been interesting to see that shift in the wider acceptance of technology and how it's integrated mm-hmm. into our lives. Because I do think to your point, like this is we're maybe at the first time where people don't feel like they're failing when they download Hinge, when they download Tinder. And I think some of that has to do too with people tend to do this in friend groups or as a social activity. And so now it's like, well, this is fun, right? Like I can look at people's profiles and there's always that sense of hope or what if, but there's also this ability to take it not so seriously. And I think, you know, when you think about like traditional matchmakers or even like personal ads, it just felt maybe a little more serious. And so I think too, some of it is, you know, how serious, how intentional are you? And does that make you feel more like a failure, right? If you're not having these other experiences, Um, whereas now it's just, I think there's that combination of we have technology for everything and Mm -hmm. it's so natural to integrate combined with 
there's a really interesting way to keep kind of a healthier distance with some of these apps. I also, I mean, and I'm maybe we'll talk about this, but I think for dating apps and a lot of technology also can't ignore how, I don't want to say helpful, but kind of how helpful COVID is like restructuring and, you know, having people kind of reevaluate what they're comfortable with or what is acceptable for connection. It gives right, people a little pause. Yeah, exactly. And well, and like a lot of my, and maybe I think Adam, you and I talked about this before, but some of my research that I did, like right when I was finishing grad school was in April, 2020. And it was trying to understand why so many people, right as lockdowns were starting, you know, people can't go anywhere. There's all this uncertainty. Yet a bunch of dating apps had a ton of downloads and people were spending a lot more time on them. And I thought that was really interesting because you're downloading an app that, you know, hopefully you're going to meet someone, maybe you're going to meet someone, but you're at a time where you're literally not leaving your house. And so I think that conundrum forced people to rethink, well, what's possible with a dating app? What can I get from a dating app? And that's also partial. That's about when I started researching sexting because it was a great way for people who, you know, wanted to get off (laughs) to find someone and not necessarily meet with them in person, but create that connection. When you talk about the seriousness or commitment's a tough word to use here because it's so loaded, but (laughs) when... Farrah referenced, you know, using a matchmaker or using online, you know, or personal ads or that level of commitment to coupling, I guess, is a better Mm -hmm. way. And you mentioned the apps might be more widely adopted because you can be less serious about it. How does that impact then the overall interest in the relationships? I mean, my gut is if you gamify it and I can just swipe and unswipe and respond or not respond, it kind of reduces a lot of it. Does that help people feel about it? Because that would impact, you know, intimacy overall. Absolutely. It varies. Um, And that is a common critique, something that people definitely say, like, you know, I feel like I'm just an option to a lot of people. Or, you know, if I, I don't have like a great opening line, or I'm not amazing in the initial conversation, they know they can move on. Mm -hmm. But again, this is something that people also recognize in themselves. So when I've interviewed people, they'll be like, I know I should, you know, give someone more of a chance, or I know I should maybe not, you know, put all my eggs in this like one conversational basket. But if someone's not amazing right away, I just kind of want to move on. And so I do think part of what's so interesting about dating apps is they really make people aware of just how wide that potential dating pool is. And so it's even it's not just that there's a lack of seriousness, but it's also that, well, this person could be okay, but what if there's someone better? Right. And so I think to your point, like maybe it's not just the sense of commitment, but it's also, you know, even if you are really looking for commitment, well, what is it? You know, how serious can you be? How perfect of a match can you find? And that's also something that really varies based on where people live. You know, before I was at Boston University, I worked at South Dakota State University, and that vastly changes who's in the dating pool, what's possible, who you might already no. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also think that absolutely changes then your approach to it. You know, if you're in Brookings, South Dakota, a lot of those people already knew each other. It's a smaller town. And so you're downloading the app kind of knowing that like, you probably know <laughs> who <laughs> you're swiping on, right? Whereas like now in Boston, someone's swiping here, like, it's, I don't want to say endless, but it definitely feels right. Like there's just a lot more potential, a lot more possibility. And so I think that changes too, then when you're swiping, how you're treating people that you swipe on. Again, if you're thinking like, oh, this one conversation is not great, maybe I move on versus, well, this initial conversation wasn't great, but I could give them another chance. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I think I told Adam this when we were talking about (laughs) this topic area. Um, I think I told you the story. I don't know if I did or not. I had like brief moments on dating apps in my early 30s. And one literally was like, oh, this person is, it was like match.com. Here's the 100% match. And he worked in the same office as me, like in an (laughs) office of 50 people. And I was like, did I need to come on here to meet this guy? I can see him. He's right over there. (laughs) You just like wave your phone at him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is before phone. It was still still on a laptop. But it was, it, it felt like part of the problem was not yet 
really widespread adoption. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you had like a in New York, and this was in New York too, which is why it was so ridiculous that it would give me someone 50 feet away from me. But it also felt like the the pool was quite small. Mm -hmm. On OkCupid, there was a similar two sets of challenges. One is it gave me two people who were like two degrees removed from me. I knew their names. They worked in the same industry as me. And that Mm -hmm. seemed to be Mm -hmm. part of the matching algorithm at one point because it was like, oh, a lot of people working in advertising. (laughs) And I was like, I sort of know who that guy is. Like I've heard of him. And there were people on there who like hadn't updated their profiles. I knew they were in relationships. And I was like, are you still on here? Because you mean to be on here? You forgot (laughs) that you had an account. Yeah. The other part of it was the gamification layer, which before we even got into the mobile phones was already creeping in. Okay, Cupid was really good at that. Mm-hmm. But it created weird incentives, which was like people would message you because that took them further to a completed profile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like good for OkCupid's okay, retention metrics for you to to take that extra step. And so I would literally get messages from guys going, "Just filling out my profile, <laughs> just filling, just trying to. I, I have to send mm-hmm. a message, so I'm sending a message. Not actually interested." And it was like, well, "Why are you wasting my time <laughs> <laughs> with that?" That's horrible. <laughs> and also. Maybe me just go this is mm, this is this is not gonna be for me <laughs> but i i think there's this kind of interesting evolution of it and it's sort of getting normalized over time but i do think like the mobile layer is a really interesting and the app based layer is a really interesting part of it because all those gamification tools that people were playing with when we were still on desktops are just so much more useful and kind of endemic when you're on a mobile mm-hmm. device because you're already scrolling and swiping through other things and here you are in the in the infinite scroll in the slot machine <laughs> um and you're you took the words <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth right it's all building on the infinite scroll and that's something i try to remind my students of right is that like any app <laughs> you're on any social media platform they don't want you to get off of them they want you to stay on there as long right. as possible and that's why the gamification of the dating apps, I think you're spot on. It's just another way of doing an infinite scroll. And I think it's capitalizing on this sense that, again, people know there's a big dating pool out there. And like, maybe you match with someone and you can talk to them. But the swipe and the scroll are also really fun. And they're just really hitting those uh, mm. dopamine receptors where you're like, yeah. well, why would I, you know, like a conversation's fine and good, but like, I could just keep <laughs> swiping, looking, investigating. With the millennials nowadays, and we're, I'm kind of I'm 38, so I'm kind of older millennial. I just feel like it's either you got married young, or you wait till you got older, or you already divorced because you know you married young and it didn't work out. So I just feel like nowadays it's so easy accessible to swipe right, swipe left because no one's happy. And you think that oh things are going to get better, or if I keep on swiping, somebody better is going to come along instead of working through things. So I think the lack of working through relationships with uh, all the apps kind of hinders things, in my opinion. Millennials, for the most part, I would say we date online. It's rare that you meet somebody in person and hit it off and exchange phone numbers or go on a date in that way. Most people meet through apps such as Tinder, Grindr, Bumble. I mean, I don't know. There's so many now. Most people meet through there, Facebook, Instagram, liking each other's photos, DMing each other. And then you finally have that like face-to-face moment where you meet up. But it's quite rare that like you go out to a bar or to a club or to a restaurant or any sort of function I don't know, amusement park and meet somebody and exchange phone numbers and have a connection. When you look at that that gamification aspect of it, you know, in in the conversation Farah had with Cindy Gallup, she talks about how porn has created an abstraction in millennial or not not specifically the millennial, but anybody, any consumer of Mm -hmm. pornography, of their understanding of intimacy and, and sex. And I wonder if this is even a further layer that's a step removed because I can swipe out of this. I can swipe whatever it is, right or left, or I could select 10 potential dates and Mm -hmm. then I can go do something else and come back. It's like, oh, it's like putting something in the microwave. Oh, okay. That turned out, you know, when I come back to my phone, it's like, oh, this person responded. Great. Something happens. In your research, do you get an emotional read from people on, on how that makes them feel both as the 
you know, on both sides of it as the recipient of a message or as someone who's intently trying to connect? It's, that's a great question. And it's such a mix. And I always hesitate to, you know, for all the things I've said to this point, I always hesitate to put too much influence or impact on the technology itself versus on human behavior. Right. And so I think for a lot of people, they try and compare what they go through on a dating app to what it would be like in person. Now, having said that, that varies a lot from person to person because some people could not fathom walking up to 10 people at a bar in the course of a night, you know, and asking for their phone numbers, whereas other people are like, yeah, that would be no problem at all. You know, I'll walk up to one person, they reject me, like, I'll go on to the next. And so I think some of this is about how you as an individual perceive the technology, but then also dating or relationships outside of or alongside Mm -hmm. that technology. I have looked a lot at socially anxious people who use dating apps. And I think that's where you see some of these real differences with the gamification like you're asking about. Mm -hmm. So socially anxious people who are really putting a lot of faith and hope into dating apps, it's such a mind game of like waiting for a message to come or writing a message and trying to write a really good message. And I think kind of how you just described it is what a lot of people do where it's like, okay, I'll write the message and then I just got to put my phone down let it sit and like, hopefully something will happen, but it's okay if it doesn't because right, it's just on my phone. Like if I'm going to get rejected or ignored, like it's not happening to my Mm -hmm. face. And so I think that's an interesting part of this is that I think the gamification almost feels safer for some people because right, if it's a game, it's a game. And so then it like, it can't really hurt Mm -hmm. my feelings. Whereas if I'm in person and someone rejects me, like that sucks. (laughs) Like that really hurts. And again, for, it really varies from person to person because there are plenty of people I've interviewed who are like, I will go to a bar and talk to as many people as I do on a dating app. But then there are other people and like one of my most fascinating interviews, I like will never get over it. I interviewed a guy who was like, I just swipe right on everyone. He was like, because I don't want to see that like I didn't match with someone like, or I don't want to swipe left. Like I don't want to have to go through the process, but I also just swipe right so fast. So then I basically can see in my matches, the people who have already said yes to me. So it was like taking away the filtering for him or the sense of potential rejection for him. And so he was only seeing people who, and so then he evaluated and said, okay, well of these, like I'll message this one, this one, this one. And I just was like, what? (laughs) But again, right. Like self-protection, you're making the phone or the technology work in a way that you're achieving your goals without getting that sense of, well, this person didn't like me. I mean, it's such a thing that I feel like we have these conversations with with clients too about like the use of data to make you feel good, right? Like met- metrics yeah, that are, yeah, you know, that you've totally gamed to make you feel good mm-hmm. about how the campaign worked, right? Like whatever metric <laughs> makes it, it less yeah, successful. That's, yeah, that's it. And I, yeah. <laughs> that was the one that clearly I'm still thinking about it because I was like, wow, that is it's an interesting approach, right? And especially yeah. then goes back to what we said, like, clearly, this is a person who's not looking carefully at profiles until like this later step where well, now they these women have already said yes to me. So now I can evaluate them. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I, I think it gets around that a problem of like, o- being overly selective, and maybe the person that you would have met in person who, you know, isn't the hottest person on the planet, but is funny, or, you know, made you feel a certain mm-hmm. kind of way, like, the, the phrase I, I came across years ago is like increasing your luck surface area. Like he's increasing his luck surface area <laughs> yeah, by swapping yeah. right on everybody. <laughs> yeah. And that's but, right. Like it's not to say that's necessarily the worst strategy. No. I think it maybe becomes more confusing if everyone starts doing everyone that. Does but, it. Then, right? but then maybe you also run into that where, well, if people are maybe more open, cause that's been, you know, the pitch for lots of dating apps is like, well, you'll meet people you would have never met before. Right. And so if you, maybe if we're all just (laughs) swiping right, you know, maybe you start meeting people that you wouldn't have otherwise, if you had put that kind of overly selective filter mindset on. Yeah, it's sort of, it's such an interesting way to handle it because it turns it into meet everybody or meet as many people as want to meet you as opposed to reject on, you know, it's like sitting in the bar, watching people walk into the bar and going, no, no, no. And just like refusing to talk to them based on their vibe when they walked in. Yeah. Exactly. So interesting. Are there a lot of people that have strategies like that? I mean, that is a very clearly articulated <laughs> strategy of, of an approach and a rationale for it that I'm like, okay, 
Yeah, right. Like definitely. Man's got a plan. Certainly does. Would love to know <laughs> if it worked. That and how do we define work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's that's what I want to know. Um, but I will say, like, a lot of people do have, you know, their kind of own approaches to dating. And some of that is even just in the apps that they choose. Um, one of the biggest changes over time has been the adoption of apps based on what people perceive them promising or what they say they promise. So like more and more people are downloading Tinder just as kind of a free for all. Uh, you know, it definitely has the association as a hookup app. I don't know that that's totally true for a lot of people. I think a lot of people go onto Tinder and just say like, we'll see what happens. Whereas people download Hinge really looking for a more committed, serious relationship. And I think Bumble's been falling somewhere in between those when you think about kind of the big three apps that are available. And I think that's really interesting to watch that change take place over time. Mm -hmm. And really the one that I am just so fascinated by is Hinge because that they've really done a great job at the marketing and branding to make themselves the relationship app. And that has been reflected really strongly in my research, which obviously is not brand affiliated, right? Like I never even... um, like I never focus on just one brand in my research. I always say like, what apps are you using and why? Mm-hmm. Um, right. So like that, that's a very natural kind of uh, split that's been happening. It is interesting because the the messaging for Hinge is so explicitly like, this is the app we want mm-hmm. you to delete eventually. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. We, we don't, we don't want the, you to have this on your phone forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and that's, I like, am, I'm kind of obsessed with that tagline because it's so smart, especially going back to what we said about, infinite scroll. And so if every other app is saying you're going to be on here forever and Hinge is clearly saying like, we know you'll delete us eventually. Like it's a pretty strong message. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously they want you to stay in the app as long as possible until then. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think as a marketing strategy, it's really working. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious about when you mentioned the, the hookup thing is, you know, part of the reason we started having this conversation about sex, intimacy, dating, talking to you, talking to Cindy Gallup was that when you look at the kind of public narrative about millennials, what we keep calling the millennial myth, talking about youth mm-hmm. culture in general, there's way more attention given to these like achievements of uh, <laughs> getting married, having children, and yes. very little focus on the nature of intimate relationships and dating and that sort of thing. And where there is, it's this kind of focus on the things that I think are meant to shock the olds. And so it's like <laughs> hookup culture and ghosting and sexting and specific emojis intended to denote body parts and gamification of dating and and, and those kinds of things. And they're, they strike me as both kind of overweighted, like they're not as widespread of behaviors or as consistent of behaviors as mm-hmm. a column in the New York Times might suggest, and also like weighted as negative. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like having any positive elements to them at all. Like pre-dating app hookup culture was also kind of a let's see how it goes. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I'm not yeah. committing, but I'm gonna have some fun tonight. Like that that was that was the whole point of hookups before then. I, yes. I'm curious about like I guess the first question I have like three questions, but like one is why do you think the sort of public narrative around sex and intimacy for young people pulls in this direction? Why do we only focus on the stuff that kind of skeeves out older people (laughs) or is meant to be cautionary in some way and not focus on any of the kind of positive upside stuff? Wow. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on my feelings. (laughs) That's a great question. Um, But succinctly, right? Like I think first of all, there's always a tension between older generations, younger generations, right? And so I think like, it's always easy for the whoever's the older and in power and all that to say like, well, what's going on with this younger one? Even though right, the older ones are the ones who raised us. Like, I always want to point <laughs> that out. Like when boomers are like, I don't get it. And I'm like, well, you were our parents. So yeah. thank you. You kind of programmed all this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like right. it didn't just come from nowhere. Um, but I also think like, you know, sex is something that's really interesting to think about in this context because right? Sex is all about like empowerment and individuality. And it's a way that people, you know, kind of find themselves and, you know, go through these rituals of, and, you know, becoming adults. And I think sex is also a way for older generations to control younger generations, right? If you look at conversations around birth control, abortion, all those things, like it, a lot of it comes down to control. And I don't know in a lot of cases that 
because to your point, right, so much of the framing is negative. And when you already are casting this specific light on it, it tells me that, you know, if you're a New York Times opinion writer, for instance, I don't know that you're really trying to understand the generation so much as criticize them. And I think it's especially just wild when you look at the data, because everything suggests that millennials and Gen Z aren't having as much sex. Um, They're not as sexual. And so it's like hookup culture, hookup panic, all this stuff. But for the most part, millennials and Gen Z are pretty chaste. (laughs) And that's not to say, right, that like, obviously, they're sexting, they're using dating apps. But I think there's a lot more nuance to it than to your point, like what a lot of these headlines want you to believe. And again, I think it comes down to, well, who's writing those headlines? Yeah. And I always think if those tools existed, my parents would have used them. You know what I mean? Like as gross as that is to think about. Um, uh, None of us us want that visual in their mind of their parents. But my parents take selfies. They use Mm -hmm. Facebook. Like it's only natural that they would use whatever tools exist at the time for whatever the purpose are. It just so happens that millennials were coming of age, coming and becoming independent adults when these apps launched, when the technology mm-hmm. could be in their pocket. But the, you're right. The op-ed is the New York Times op-ed is the, I think the crosshairs that Farah was uh, positioning when she asked that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yes, ha- having some older friends and relatives who are most definitely using dating apps um, and not always having a great time, but they're trying them out. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's no question that <laughs> had it been available, they would have done it. I mean, and and again, like the, the signal there is like, if it's making it into Woody Allen movies in the early 1980s, if it's making it into rom-coms in the mid and late 80s, like if it's You've Got Mail is essentially a story about people meeting online. I mean, not through a dating app, just through AOL. But also, like, I'm a firm believer in any technology that is, you know, sufficiently widespread will turn into a way to get laid. So, like, you oh, don't have yeah, to build 100%. in a sex layer to your app. It'll just turn in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It'll yeah. get there eventually. It absolutely will. <laughs> I guess one, one question that I guess I have is about things like sexting, since that was that was the, the chapter you shared with us, is like, is it good, actually? Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, no. And that's, again, great question, because I think it is. And I think it's another one of those things that tends to get framed in a pretty negative light, like, why would anyone ever do this behavior? Whereas, it's actually, you know, it kind of goes alongside with this, you know, reduction in sex overall, sexting is a great way, particularly for younger adults to figure out what it is they're comfortable with, what their preferences are. I mean, it's also just a great way to learn to communicate. Now, I'm not saying, right, like unsolicited dick pics and dating apps like that (laughs) isn't great, right? And that's kind of its own layer of, you know, why do people do this? What are they getting from it? But in the context of a consensual relationship, sexting is really healthy. And a lot of my research has shown that for people who are in relationships, whether dating, engaged, married, when they sext, they tend to have really positive outcomes, um, particularly self-esteem outcomes from engaging Mm -hmm. in the behavior. So, you know, when Mm -hmm. you're sexting with a partner, you're getting cues about like your desirability, right? The quality of your relationship. And again, you're learning how to communicate really intimate information back and forth. And so putting all that together, people tend to say like, well, I've come away from this experience feeling really good about myself, about my relationship, the self-esteem increases as well as the sexual gratification increases um, have been consistently significant in all of my work on this. And so, and again, like, you know, you have to think about, well, what, sometimes I'm like, do you want millennials to have more sex? Do you want us to not use phones? Like, where where are we going with this? But I think, you know, the rise in sexting goes along with some of the reduction in physical sex, because I also think, you know, it's, it's a safe option for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is so much of what, you know, Cindy is talking about and trying to build with Make Love Not Porn, which is not a porn site, mm-hmm. per se, like that, that that's not the, you know, the, the, the real world sex is her phrase for it, right. because it is meant to spark conversation, it is meant to help people, you know, like, there are some of the most popular videos are solo sex videos mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm. teaching people literally teaching people yeah. how to experience their own pleasure how to be how to understand their own bodies how to figure out what they like and then seeing real people have normal sex mm-hmm. not porn produced sex is yep. also like 
you know, lots of different body types, lots of different kinds mm-hmm. of, you know, likes and dislikes, lots of different, mm-hmm. that, that there's so much more space for it. And it doesn't all have to kind of conform to one thing. And I think when sexting gets reduced to the unwanted dick pic, which is, I think, where a lot of people's minds go with when mm-hmm. they hear sexting, you don't get the part where we're like, it's COVID, we can't be physically together, but we can have some kind of intimacy. It's a long distance relationship, but we can still have some kind mm-hmm. of intimacy. Somebody's just traveling for work, but we can remain intimate. Yeah. Or we're just negotiating what we like before we're actually naked in front of each other. And that that seems like, that's why I wanted to ask, like, it seems like there's room for this to be a net positive thing, as opposed to something we're wringing our hands about in op-ed pieces. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of those points you made are all things that people mentioned in different parts of my research about like, I love that you use the word negotiating, because that is a huge part for a lot of people where it's like, I don't just have to, you know, go on a couple dates with someone and then get naked in front of them. Like, I can really have this process to feel out what's going to be comfortable for me, kind of what happens when. And I thought, I don't know, that was one of the most valuable things I saw people say over and over was, you know, it's a sense of almost safety in Mm you know, building the relationship, developing the relationship. I think we have a lot more options. And that way, we're a little bit pickier than past generations. We can meet people online, you know, through dating apps, you know, social media, you know, past generations didn't really have that they could only meet whoever they could see face to face, whether it was on vacation or just in the town that they were in through work, or other social events in their city and town. So because of that, I think it takes us a little bit longer to settle down. I also think we do a better job at, you know, maybe making sure our morals and our wants and, you know, our lives match up a little bit better than maybe past generations did. I think we're just a little bit more thoughtful in choosing who we have relationship with. I think we're a lot more lenient on those not necessarily rules, but the criteria when we're choosing a sexual partner, just because we have so many options, we can kind of test the waters more to see what we like, what we don't like, and we're a lot more open than past generations. And I think that all has to do with social media and dating apps. One of the other parts of this is the privacy piece, though. And, and you know, we're one of the things I always think about is, you know, the standard story coming out of Silicon Valley and out of Madison Avenue is actually people don't really care about privacy. If they did, they wouldn't even be on TikTok. And like, that's the easy way out of having to do anything to safeguard their privacy, right? Until regulators come along and say you have to do something and then, right. you know, they figure out a way around it, but whatever. I, one of the things you mentioned in in the chapter you shared is that privacy is an important filter for selection of the appropriate technology for sexting. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also that there's a lot of kind of it's good enough right now around which technology people choose. So like, it might not be my preference to use Snapchat or text messaging or whatever, but I'm using it because it fulfills other needs. And then there's Mm -hmm. like real gaps in people's perceptions about how much privacy they have or how much security they have. There's always the ever present, you know, the thing I, I sometimes caution people about as well is like, never forget the screenshot. But like, I mean, maybe just talk a bit about how privacy enters into this, because I think we think of meat space relationships Mm -hmm. as having an inherent level of privacy that I'm not sure they really do. But setting that aside, um, that that like online relationships are inherently not private and that people are just like letting go of that. I don't think that's true. Maybe talk about some of the nuances around the the privacy. Yeah. Privacy, I think, is one of the most interesting aspects of this because it's something that people really need to think through and they will, and then they kind of forget it. (laughs) Um, And it makes sense, right? Like if you are getting into sexting, like you're actually in the process, you know, if you're really turned on, it suddenly becomes really hard to think about, well, what channel, (laughs) right, is like the most encrypted. And that was something people said over and over was like, I know, for instance, that when I sext, I really should use WhatsApp. Because I know WhatsApp is encrypted, you know, it's going to do all these things. But if I get like a really hot picture from my partner in a text message, I do not want to change <laughs> channels. <laughs> so like, okay, that was great. But like, I'll message you on this other thing. And so I think it's so interesting, because particularly when you think about millennials, millennials and Gen Z as well, but really millennials are very aware of these privacy conundrums. It goes back to 
you know, growing up with a lot of this technology, watching how it's evolved, watching data get released, sold, used, Mm -hmm. even just, you know, the way the ads follow you around the internet. And so there's definitely an awareness of what could happen. But then in the moment, it's really hard to kind of prioritize. And I think that's really interesting and kind of just speaks to human nature, right? Like, what desires or impulses are you going to give into? Where are your concerns? Also absolutely ties into the existing relationship. So for a lot of people who are in really long-term relationships, it's like, well, yeah, we can send text messages back and forth because I'm not really worried about my long-term partner sharing this content or like you said, you know, screenshotting it and posting it somewhere. Risk really increases when, you know, it's a newer relationship. You don't know the person, you know, in COVID, if you haven't even met them in person, that Mm -hmm. suddenly changes the overall approach. And that's where things like Snapchat come in. And that was something in the chapter I shared with you, a lot of millennials tended to sext within Snapchat because they liked that you send a photo and it disappears. Or if it's screenshotted, you get a notification, you know, screen recording, you get a notification. So it felt like, you know, even once it was released to the other person, there's still a lot of control Mm -hmm. over the content. But right, even with Snapchat, the company itself keeps all of your snaps, right? Like, and that's something that no one seemed to really think about is that like, yeah, maybe your partner deletes it or, you know, disappears from their phone, but like, (laughs) it's all stored in the Snapchat server. And that remains server side. Because, right, like one of the big appeals for a lot of people of Snapchat is the memories feature where it's like on this day, four years ago, six years ago. And a lot of people are like, oh, I guess that means they must be keeping a record of this somewhere. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, they are. Uh, and How exciting so that- when, when, when today's <laughs> memory is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, but that I think is also part of the conundrum is like the sense of privacy between you and a partner versus the sense of privacy between you and a company. Right. And most people are thinking a lot more about you and a partner because right. And there's reason to do that screenshots, revenge porn, right? Like all these things. So it's not to say that that's not a merited consideration because it is, but a lot of people just kind of think like, well, uh, what, what, what could the company do or why would a company do it? But even right, like WhatsApp is owned by meta. (laughs) And so even the one that people are like, that's probably my best option. It's like, but is it right? When you think about who the parent company is. Yeah. That's part of the narrative we've keep bumping into is the introduction of the corporate overlord (laughs) into and around and behind the scenes of the narrative impacting Mm -hmm. every part of your life where it used to be the government kind of leading us, trying to get us all to have a civic life. And then it's like, Mm -hmm. "Eh, let's Mm -hmm. outsource that. Sears can out, can tell us what to do. Oh yeah. Buy sheets. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting, especially with the combination of brand awareness and recognition, but then also, the taken for grantedness of it, right? Because again, with millennials, you know, Facebook was really designed, designated, targeted toward millennials in college when it was first coming out. And so it's not that millennials trust Facebook, but there is a lot more experience, awareness, just almost understanding of it. And I think even people who are like, you know, I hate Facebook or I hate Twitter now, you know, whatever, like there's still this, well, it's embedded and it's just so easy to use or it's convenient um, and so I guess what I'm really saying is I think this also extends beyond sexting for particularly millennials. Yeah. When you were looking at the research, what were your kind of age breaks for thinking about who's a millennial and who's who's Gen Z, since this is also something that seems incredibly fluid in the world? <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> and that's a great question. So I tended to follow you know a lot of existing research, but I also didn't make a lot of clean breaks. Like I didn't say like, if you're born in like 96, 95, you're Gen Z. I did try instead see what age people were. And I t- tend now to think of millennials as, you know, like late 20s, early 30s to 40s. And, but it's interesting. So I have a younger brother and he is 28. And we talk all the time because he is right on the cusp of millennial Gen Z. And mm-hmm. We talk a lot about the differences that he feels, even with just, you know, we only have a few years between us, but it's interesting because I'm definitely firmly (laughs) millennial and he's not so much. And so that's part of why I approached it the way I did kind of keeping a more fluid break between people. But I tend to think of millennials as 
I think that's the thing, right? Millennials are older than I think anyone ever thinks anymore. <laughs> like yes. I feel like when people throw the word millennial out, they're still like, oh, these teenagers. And I'm like, man, I'm in yeah. the 30s. Like, <laughs> come on. Yeah, if it came yeah. with shorthand for, for the youth. Exactly, exactly. And so I, that's, I think it's a great question because like, I think the youngest millennials now are 29, 30. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, I I would love this might be a little assignment I give myself is to go back and look at kind of media accounts of baby boomers, because I feel like there was like 30 years of them being in their 30s. And like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they were hitting retirement age. And it was like, whoa, yeah. what happened? Social security. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah, there was not a lot of I mean, there were certainly plenty of thought pieces about boomers at 40 or whatever. But right. then like, then like you get past like 45 and you get ignored anyway. So don't worry about it. <laughs> After 45, no one in marketing cares about you. So it's just, it's right. totally chill at that point. It's kind of nice. It's, it's great. But that, that, those sort of cusp distinctions are really interesting because part of the joke of our intros is that um, for many years, I was in a pocket that did not technically belong to any of the generations. They ended for a long time, Gen X at like 72 to 74, and they didn't mm-hmm, start millennials mm-hmm. till 80. And so I'm in that interregnum period where you were neither nor. And my brother, though, was born like at the end of 1980. So he he also has this like strong identification or he used to anyway, a strong identification as millennial, which brings up another part of this, which is also that sense of like identifying with Mm -hmm. a generational handle that is meant to describe tens of millions of people who don't have that much in common. <laughs> right. And so I mean, as a millennial, maybe like live unpack that for us, Katie, <laughs> what does it mean you wouldn't mind solving to identify this. as sure. a millennial? And why do you think that is the case? Like, what are the things that make you totally um, millennial? Yeah. Well, I have, again, we could do like a whole other episode on this. I have a lot, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thoughts about this, but I think, Millennials are a particularly interesting group. Um, and this is like so not online dating <laughs> related, like my personal take. I think one of the biggest differences for millennials compared to a lot of other generations and why I do think so many of us actually say like, yeah, I have a sense of identification is like we grew up in such a weird time and like every generation does, but I don't think you can underestimate the impact of 9-11 on our generation, particularly because we were between, you know, like second, third grade and, you know, maybe freshman year of high school. Like it's a very ripe time for development kind of at any of those ages. And to see something like that happen, you know, on TV, right. It's like one of the first things a lot of us remember. I think it really sets a tone for a generation that was like, well, what, where do I go from here? Right. Like what's next. And so I think that starts a lot of the difference within the generation, especially too, because you have 9-11 and then basically the internet takes off. And so again, like I don't just study online dating, like I also have done some stuff on social media and like read a lot about social media. And I think that very quick evolution of the internet in the wake of 9-11 really kind of puts us all in this sense. And again, I don't think every single millennial would be like, yeah, I totally agree. But I think, you know, at some level, that is something that has put us all together because yeah, you have 9-11, you have the internet take off, and then you have like a massive financial crash. Mm-hmm. And all of us are like teenagers, the oldest trying to figure out like what this means. Um, and so I do think those like really big things tie together for that sense of identification. And I do think like back to my brother, I think that's part of why he does have that sense that he's not as much a millennial, and maybe more Gen Z, because he doesn't remember 9-11. Yeah. Like he was young enough that that's not a memory where I was just the right age. Like I could tell you about my entire day that day. And I think that is one of the biggest distinguishing factors. And then, you know, also just growing up with war in Iraq and all of the things that came from that, like, again, not online dating related at all, but just the fact that like, there were so many, you know, jihad videos, like Abu Ghraib, like just a not great time to have the internet take off, to be super young on the internet. And you're just exposed Mm -hmm. to everything, Mm -hmm. anything. And I think that is why so many millennials are like, yeah, I am a millennial. Like this is, <laughs> this was my environment. Yeah. I, I mean, um, if, if one thing I think we've been discovering and rediscovering as we read stuff about this and, and do some of the look at things that were kind of contemporaneous to these periods, it's also like by that time, 
right at that point is when we're all actively talking about Gen Y and millennials and echo boomers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so like there's a brand name yep. for this whole cohort of people. Whereas Gen X, like Gen X doesn't become popular usage until m- half of Gen Xers are well into their 20s. Like they're, they're adults right. with jobs and paying rent. They're out of college by the time we're calling them Gen X. So there wasn't really the same kind of attempt to brand them. The other thing was the Gen X definition was so pejorative from the beginning. It was so yes. slackers and all of that, mm-hmm. that like when you got painted with that handle, <laughs> um, you were like, like the instinct was to reject it if if you didn't feel like you were a slacker. And, right. you know, I, I don't know very many people who genuinely identified as slackers, except ironically, mm-hmm. in the sense of, sure, I've got three jobs and live in an apartment <laughs> with three other guys, but call me a slacker if that's what makes you happy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you're right that, you know, the branding of millennials from very early on was like, this is going to be like the best generation or like, they're going to have like, all the right tools, all the right things. And then it was like, happy 2008, here's a crisis that half of you graduating aren't going to be able <laughs> yeah. to find jobs. And yeah. and I think that starts some of that more negative framing of us then, right? Where it's like, yeah. well, why do millennials still live at home? And it's like, because <laughs> what housing market? <laughs> you know, why are you still with your parents? And I think that ties into why you see millennials not having sex or putting relationships off. Like, a lot of you're us not going to do it at your parents' house. <laughs> Thank you. Is that right? Like you're not going to like hook in up your in your twin parents' bed house. That you grew yeah. up in. Especially, and then it's, you add like a lockdown on top of that, right? Like it's like, oh, if I go outside, there's some disease that I don't understand, and now I'm going to bring a stranger into my parents' house to hook up. Like that's yeah. just absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the complaint for Gen Xers who were living in the shadow of the AIDS crisis was they weren't pairing off the way they were supposed mm-hmm, to pair off mm-hmm. because they were in groups. Right. And the groups thing starts out because they're latchkey kids. And, you know, so there's like right. a lot of fend for yourselfness with children. And so children will form groups to protect mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah, absolutely. Like it's totally natural nature. thing to do. Yeah, it's human nature. And so they're hanging out in groups. And sometimes that means like depending on the month, there's different pairing offs within that group. And mm-hmm. again, the adults were like, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, because like it's not the 1960s. 50s and 60s where cars were cheap. There were plenty of places to go as an underage person where dating was like a formalized thing that you did. It was fine to casually date before you started to go steady. You guys had all these Mm -hmm. rules and affordances. And now like there's like one friend in a group of four that has a car. (laughs) And, you know, the only places to go are movies and coffee shops that stay open late. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. basically it. You get chased out of anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I think that the fascinating thing for millennials has been like the hits just keep on coming, but they're timed at these specific moments where like really that is that is a headwind against the typical achievement that you're supposed to be hitting at that point. Um, The housing thing, the lockdowns, all of that stuff just kind of comes up against it. Yeah. I, I think the way that I think about it with to bring it back um, (laughs) to sexting and online dating is also like, to your point, like raised on the open internet, like the open internet in the the first wave and then web 2.0 with social media and Mm -hmm. like coming up alongside all of that. And in each stage, your boomer parents, my boomer parents were enthusiastic about what this would bring. Mm-hmm. Right. We were just talking the other day about how excited my dad was about CompuServe because CompuServe was going to be the world's <laughs> library in our right. house and like homework and knowing stuff <laughs> and being connected to the rest of the world and all of that. And then social media was also this idea of like, you can expand Mm-hmm. your horizons, meet more people, be more connected, meet people on some sort of genuine meeting ground of shared interests, not just geographic location. Right. And it did that for a while. <laughs> but with the good comes the bad. Like the old line, sort of pre-2008 maybe, I don't know, right around 2008, I think it was probably around the time that like the Arab Spring didn't turn out to work mm-hmm. out the way mm-hmm. people were hoping in the early days. There was this mm-hmm. shift from like clay shirky, here comes everybody talking about like, well, if you want to have Ushahidi, the platform that's like providing citizen monitoring of election safety, you have to have lolcats. And it's right, like, okay, right. well, if you want to have whatever's of high value on the internet, then you have to have 
8chan <laughs> and you have to have doxing and you have to have Gamergate. Like it, it went to a more toxic place than most people were mm-hmm. experiencing on the internet. But like there is a good and a bad that comes with all of this. And I think the thing that's happening now is just this like all these other demographic anxieties about people not having enough children or buying enough houses yes. or having enough job stability or what have you. And that just then infects every other piece of the narrative. And so we we don't talk about is sexting good actually <laughs> we talk about ghosting and eggplant emojis yeah, and exactly. dick pics and things like that exactly and that's also just like the spicier thing right especially now when you're thinking about there's just so much that could draw our attention demand our attention and so right. if you're writing a headline if you're trying to you know put a social post out there like a lot of people are like oh i don't want to hear about good behavior <laughs> right like <laughs> tell me tell me why the eggplant emoji is bad <laughs> and i so i think that you're right. Like there are these other anxieties and then it's easy to just kind of double down on mm-hmm. those. And especially for the sake of clicks. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for your book because in our research about this topic, <laughs> I managed to find like one book about millennial sex and it was a very well-intentioned book and very interesting, <laughs> but it's also built on like 60 interviews, mostly in Colorado. And um, it was clearly oh. someone's PhD project. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the smaller scale ones. Farrah um, <laughs> so. read, read the last print issue of Hustler and she tried to put it in our research. That's what she's referring yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> Look. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. But just it, I don't think we'll hold up to peer review with that. <laughs> I used to work for a woman who was friends with Larry Flint. I'm just going oh, wow. to say that. Um, I once had to order things for his brother's wedding um, for wow. that were on his registry. It was... Uh, <laughs> It was it was very uh, rustic stuff. I'm just going to say that it was not not, not <laughs> lewd, just rustic and sort of odd yeah, in- to me at the time. Incredible word choice. <laughs> it's like, just leave okay. it. Theater of the mind is taking over. <laughs> Katie, it was lovely to see you again. Yeah, Thank you for making time for us. You. This is fantastic. Absolutely happy happy to chat. Like I said, I have <laughs> so many thoughts. So always always happy to share. Excellent. We, we may circle back with you as we continue this uh, this yeah. work. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from the Difference Engine and edited by Allison Preisinger and Amp Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone once told us it helps.